I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to The Voice of Insurance. This episode could easily be called Everything You Wanted to Know About InsureTech But Were Afraid to Ask. This is because today's guests are InsureTech pioneers who spend their time finding new insurance ideas and the entrepreneurs behind them. They knock the rough edges off, apply expertise, lend regulatory licenses so that ideas can be tested, and make connections with incumbent insurers as well as investors. They also deploy their own venture capital funds into the companies they find. In short, they provide one of the few full-service platforms for innovative new ventures and fulfil the role of translators between the often disconnected worlds of technology and insurance. Now with five years' experience, the Voice of Insurance spoke to Stephen Britton and Robert Lumley of the InsureTech Gateway to find out what they had learned after being at the bleeding edge of insurance innovation for such a long time. The results may surprise you. Here you can get half a decade's learning compressed into half an hour. A pioneer like the Gateway has often had to learn the hard way. By listening to this excellent episode, you won't have to. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Robert and Stephen. Thanks so much for supporting The Voice of Insurance. InsureTech Gateway, why don't you introduce yourselves briefly and tell us all about the InsureTech Gateway, how it started, and and what's it all about? Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for having us both on the uh, on the show today. Just a little bit of background about me and how we then arrived at the Gateway. I've been probably in the insurance world as long as you in terms of I've had about 35 years. As a family, we had 120 years in the insurance business. We were started in 1902 and then in 1922, my grandfather took the first Lloyds Binding Authority to Australia. In the 50s and 60s, we did warranties. In the 80s, we did legal protection which was a first as well. And then we did tenant referencing. And then um, we grew the businesses to several hundred million. But it was really around that point that we recognised we used the tech of the day. So I've got a fair degree of startups, but the real challenge or the real change happened was when I met Stephen Britton, who I'll leave him to introduce himself now. And is um, Lumley still a name in the Australian insurance industry? I remember seeing it around. Is it still there or is it now gone? Is uh, it- I think it's just, it, it's now part of, uh, was sold to West Farmers. I think they're now losing the name, actually, but it had a very strong name for many years. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, so I met, as uh, Rob just said, we met five years ago. There's something very interesting about when Robert and I met in that I think we uncovered the kind of DNA of the gateway that we're now trying to impart on insurers. And what we're trying to impart, so when I met Robert, I met the first person in insurance who was also an investor. And that meant that he would look at a business and say, that's investable, that's insurable. And I think we've spent the last four years trying to meet large incumbent insurers who can make that decision. They look at an idea when it walks in the door and go, I think we could insure that. And I think we should invest in it. And I can't tell you how rarely that we've met that Our new mission is to kind of impart that know-how that we've managed to take that simple moment in time when we can meet something new and we can both evaluate it and make a decision on that basis. And what we're trying to do now is to share that philosophy with our partners and the the partners that we hope to bring on board to say, look, there's one thing for your CEO to like this or your head of underwriting to like this. But if you can't both put your heads together and say this is insurable and investable, as in we can engage with this both financially and then from the intellectually from an underwriting perspective it just doesn't happen and it's the characteristic of the of the insurance industry that they can't make decisions because the other half of the brain is never in the room if one thing that we can leave as a message today is that that simple insight that we've gained by first sort of decoding sample one robert lumley 
turning it into a platform in the gateway that could invest and insure at the same time, to then try to scale that into our partners. That, I think, is our mission. And I guess my background, I describe, I come from innovation and tech, and um, I really like big problems to solve. And um, Robert and I had a very long conversation. We were introduced by a, a mutual friend. And he was really discussed with me the challenges that the insurance market was having with innovating just full stop. And I've been working in other sectors. I've been working in sort of media and retail and broadcast and other sectors that had that big revolution of digital. And the way that Rob described the moment in time, it made me realize that, and with his help and with his guidance into the sector, that we could create a platform for people on the outside to innovate. That rather than try to change the industry from the inside, we could change it from the outside. And what we both understood from our, both our backgrounds was that change was going to come from fresh thinking, fresh ideas, new technology, and that was plentiful. What was difficult was finding a way to engage with an industry that was locked in some quite rigid structures and ways of thinking, and on top of that being regulated. So the Gateway became the answer to that, hence the name. The Gateway was a place where external thinking could be explored interrogated by the insurance market with a view to at some point in the midterm being integrated into business as usual. It seemed to us to be the fastest way to innovate. And that's what's really driven our design approach and thinking, which is we believe we've created a platform which is the fastest place to innovate in insurance for both sides of that equation, for the insurer and for the new tech blood to come into. Now that you're five years in, why don't you give a bit of us an idea of what sort of scale of a business you are now, an organization, perhaps say, rather than a business? How many businesses have you invested in? What sort of size is that in, perhaps in gross written premium terms? Yeah, I think probably the first thing to say, Mark, is that innovation is not an overnight success. Certainly five years down the track, we've come across many hurdles. But as Steve was saying, we iron those out with creating a platform that would help these startups literally get into market and test their product in market. And we see that you don't actually want to scale things until you've got absolute control over all the stakeholders within it. So in answer to your question, we've backed about 20 businesses. Almost all of those have gone through our incubator platform. We have raised within those portfolios about £50 million of investment. So, and we've seen all the, and I'm sure we'll carry on to talk about this, but we've seen a lot of investment in InsureTech over the last few years. The businesses are valued at around about 150 million now, and their premium levels are in the tens of millions, which is a deliberate breaks on approach that we have until Steve talks about it as being small monsters and big monsters. You have to be completely sure that you've got your risk modeling correct as you go into market. And the 20 or so businesses we have now will, over five years, we have a very clear route to how they will hit 500 million in GWP over the next five years. So if you think about it as the journey, the platform started them, and then we move into a controlled growth for all the stakeholders involved. So is that really your philosophy, Robert? We've seen a lot of these pinups in the insurtech world, if, if that's the right way of describing them. They seem to be focused on distribution and really good user experience, in, particularly in consumer insurance. But perhaps at the moment, they're probably leaving core underwriting profitability as something that comes later you seem to be more conservative in that approach. And do you think that's the right way to go? 
Yeah, it's such a great question and there's no real right answer or wrong answer on it. We see it in two ways. There's obviously product and distribution, which are two different things in terms of innovation. And um, the product innovation has probably lagged a little bit over the last 30 years. Distribution has definitely been at the forefront right back from the direct line times in the 80s. And then we ended up with Aon buying a number of businesses in the 80s and 90s as well. And then you currently have Gallagher's and Madonna consolidating things and mega mergers with Aon and Willis and so on. And then you see Lemonade and the roots of this world that are really in, we see, a position to acquire clients at great rate. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, it's a very clearly a very successful model, particularly from the investor's point of view. But if you think of the hare and the tortoise type race, the hare being the distributor and the tortoise being the underwriter in this event, You've got lots of hares running around, getting a lot of distribution to your point about growing the businesses without really worrying about the poor old tortoise who is the incumbent carrying the risk on his back. And we don't think that innovation has really succeeded until both the hare and the tortoise across the line. So you can grow your top end distribution with lots of clients, but until you've actually got your underwriting profitability correct, you run the risk of actually burning out. And we don't want to put our investors or any of our startups into that position. So we are very conservative in that regard. And Stephen, I'd like to bring you in on that. So it's once you've got the underwriting profitability, of course, the technology means you can scale really, really fast. But of course, you don't want to scale until you've got something that you know is really great. and You're scaling profitability upwards as well. Absolutely right. It's been an enormous lesson for me, actually, when you realize that we have so many hats we have to wear at the same time. We find ourselves with the kind of investor's hat and everything is about indicators and good news in the early stage. You want to tell everybody you've got the next unicorn in your hands. But at the same time, you put the insurance hat on and you, you have to put that word of caution in. You have to recognize that what you're doing in terms of creating risk could catch up with you. And that you're not going to bring your insurer with you. They'll just drop you. And we met many, many businesses when we first started who had sounded like the next big thing. And then their insurers had caught a cold halfway through. And there was a good reason for it. They just saw this chasm opening of risk. That hadn't been thought through. So, I mean, I think we were lucky to be behind that wave in the way that we designed ourselves with both that sense of um, the entrepreneurial innovator and the cautious insurer sort of with that binocular vision on how we were moving forward. And it's quite different to make a business, we always say, it's got to be insurable and investable. Unless you have the two combined, you really do struggle to have a longer term growth business. And Robert, something you said earlier about the tortoise and the hare, I think that's a really good analogy. When we first started this whole InsurTech phenomenon, when I was reporting on it five years ago, when it was particularly exciting, at the beginning, we were saying, oh, you know, you tortoises in my industry, those incumbents, you need to watch out. These hares are going to come and they're going to race to the finish line and they're going to win and you're all going to lose and you're all going to be dead within 10 years. You're going to be cut out of the business. Your analysis seems to be more that nobody really wins until the, the slowest incumbents have also caught up. So you don't really see it in terms of disruption and winners and losers. I see disruptive product, but I think winners and losers, you have to have the capital providers making profits. It's just simply inconceivable to think that you can grow a business to billions of dollars worth of premium and yet lose insurers, the capital providers, the money just on the back end with the claim. So definitely got to make sure that the capital provider is there. And to your point about whether it's the incumbents or not, we clearly are seeing new underwriting capital coming in. But what everybody is risking here is the fact that technology will change wholesale the risk profile of the policies that you underwrite. And I think what 
we see and how we are seeing lots of new ideas coming to the market is that actually risk transfer and risk understanding is allowing risk transfer to happen later. So that if you've got data coming in telling you about an accident that is about to happen, then you can begin as the owner, the original owner of that asset to understand how much you insure. And by doing that, you're then able to actually make a decision, an informed decision as to how much risk you can carry on your own balance sheet. So I think insurance is changing on the tech front. I don't believe that the incumbents will move out of the industry. I think they understand risk and underwritten risk for a number of years. So the changing environment is all around the understanding of risk in the now and in the immediate future as well. Is that because people can measure risk? You can tell a driver to stop driving so fast or braking so hard, and you can actually avoid those accidents. But of course, the things that you can't avoid, the unavoidable and unpredictable things are still there, and therefore the incumbent's always there for those things. Exactly right. The unknown unknown. That goes back to the very basic principles of insurance, right back to the Lloyd's days, their initial Lloyd's days. It's You want to be able to ensure that if something happens that you just couldn't foresee, then you get compensated for it. Whereas now a lot of tech is telling you a number of things that you just didn't know before in the real time. And with AI coming down at great speeds as well, the ability to change risk is with us, which is, I think, the exciting bit in InsureTech at the moment. There's a point you made just now about, you know, that we thought that these startups are going to come in and have our lunch. And actually, it's going to be at the timing when we're all good and ready. I just wanted to break that myth before we go further, because there are insurers that get it and getting ready and they will win. But the majority of insurers are sitting there thinking this is happening somewhere else, and they are going to lose. So there's not hares and tortoises, don't worry, the hares won't will till everybody's happy because you're in control, you're the insurer. Not true. There are insurers who are going to quadruple the size of their books and others who will disappear as a result of not getting this. The Gateway has been on a mission for the last couple of years to make sure we engage with the most progressive insurers because it's going to be a thinning of the pack. So to go back to that analogy, tortoises and hares, as long as the tortoise is conscious that there is a race and they ought to be in the race, they're going to be probably okay because that's, that's, they've made the first step in the right direction towards the finishing line. But if the tortoise is down the pub or doing something else, just business as usual, and they're not in the race. And well, maybe they're more an ostrich than a tortoise. <laughs> <than a> tortoise. <laughs> and so the main point, your point, is that they need to be conscious that they are in the race and they need to make the right steps in the right direction. Yes, and, and outside of this conversation, insurers are investing in this space significantly. Some insurers are really stepping up their game here. Stephen, InsurTech is a really, really broad church. Part of your job is to go out and to look at the technology and the ideas and see which ones you think are investable, which ones are going to work. How do you go about that? How do you segment this really broad market? It's an ever-changing conversation, to be honest with you, Mark. Going through our hats of investor and business builder and insurer, there are different ways of segmenting. But the one that we find most useful and, and is probably most amusing is bonkers or brilliant. Here is an idea. Here is a founder. Is there enough in this to go any further? That's just through our experience of just meeting them and our general curiosity about what feels right and what feels like this emerging space that we've been tracking for the last five years. So bonkers or brilliant is, are we willing to spend more time with this group, this individual, to explore this idea? And that's the first cut of the pack. And then we're really looking at those groups as to whether they can lead and form teams. Because a lot of this tech is born out of R&D kind of thinking, R&D kind of mindsets. So often you can find a genius who really should stay in their shed. 
And then you meet a genius who can either is a project manager, can work with a project manager and can form a team, structure a business, raise capital and overcome milestones, can get the pace going, can get movement and a team of people. So that's, a, that's the investable piece that Robert referred to before. But I think in terms of good old fashioned maps that we can look at and go, where's the market going kind of segmentation. We've got a very easy left side, right side, which is we like new risk spaces, new verticals. The sharing economy is a new vertical that did not have an insurance class before. Digital assets, cryptocurrency, these are things that didn't exist. They are multi-billion dollar spaces that require protection, guarantees, warranties, bonds. And we have another set which really gets the insurance geeks going in the room. And I'm fortunate sometimes to be working with a few of them, which is in the kind of reinvention of risk. And reinvention of risk is, is still a learning phase for us, but is really where we're looking at taking the cost out of risk and the efficiency out of risk itself. And without sounding too philosophical, the pockets within that, you know, there are areas where what was parametric and parametric is the buzzword of the year, but parametric matched with kind of new data sets, with the behavior of crowds, changing people's way of preventing and mitigating how the risk happens in the first place, married with a parametric trigger, has led to some very exciting areas. So those subsections of new risk are, tend to be a parametric or mutual meets some of these new technical spaces, big data, crowd, prevention behavior. So we're starting to see businesses that at the end of a test phase, and I think we've, if we haven't before, there's a process that we see of an idea comes to us, and then we try to get some metrics in the first three or four months of working with them. And they're either trying to demonstrate or validate that their vertical exists. It's here, it's now, this vertical of, let's say, cryptocurrency exists today. All we're trying to show in this new risk sector that there is a significant pricing advantage, or should I, a tech advantage leading to a pricing advantage. So does putting a parametric trigger with a flood IoT device, Internet of Thing device on a building, reduce the actual cost of the risk of that specific property and the cost of supporting that claim? If we can get a like-for-like -like comparison, it's a significant price advantage, then that's a tick, it's a validated concept. So we end up kind of what comes out the back of the gateway of validated market spaces, validated pricing advantages and pricing models. We hope that that then becomes a point where we can start to talk about, shall we scale this? I think that's so important, Steve, that validation piece is what we see as probably where you scale too quickly to a billion or $2 billion worth of premiums, and you haven't got the full validation of all the metrics involved in there. That's your only options there is to scale the business down again once you've got a very expensive growth business. Stephen, but I personally segment insurtech into the ones that are more service providers that are helping incumbents do things better, like better underwriting or better understanding of their own risk, and others that are the more genuine competitive threats to incumbents that could probably go and get their own balance sheet and their own capital. What, is that goodies of, and baddies? Well, not necessarily, but you know, some are more collaborative and some are more potentially disruptive. And what sort of percentage do you think there is of those, the split one way or another? We had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think we entirely know, but we know what comes through our door. And I think somebody, Ollie and our team said that something like 35% of the businesses that come to us are trying to somehow improve or be an efficiency tool for the insurance market. And unfortunately, we say to them, they've come to the wrong door. That's not quite what we do. 
fortunately leaves us with 65% that might be right for us. But I think if you were one of the large insurers, you might find that those numbers are the other way around. A majority of people are seeing the insurer as the client. We rarely see the insurer as the client. And a lot of the challenges those businesses face that we tend to avoid are because it's this early stage venture space. The shocking thing about those kind of ideas for us is that most of the money is required to keep that team working while they're waiting for the insurer to answer the phone and to give them the meeting and the decision they want. They are held up in insurance buying cycles, whereas the businesses we back tend to be in the buying cycles of tech partnerships with groups like Airbnb to work with them on a bespoke insurance product. They answer the phone quickly. Their sales cycles are incredibly fast because they're growth businesses. So we're more attracted to the pace of those kinds of spaces. I think a lot of startups get really challenged by the fact that the uh, insurance buying cycle, as you call it, Steve, there is so slow. The biggest killer for most startups is the lack of cash over the period of time. If it takes 12 to 18 months to make a decision from an insurance perspective, that is too long for a startup. Stephen, you've now been going for five years, which is a long time. What's changed? What have you learned in this experience? How do you do things differently from when you started? It might take me five years to give you a good answer. I think in terms of our own, I mean, obviously, we've learned the hard way, everything, and we make decisions better as a team. And I think we've progressed to a point where that duality of having the insurance point of view and the investor point of view is kind of a combined brain now, and we all work effectively as a team. So I think that's been the single biggest thing is that we've learned to operate that duality. But I think sort of in method and in process, we've we're very clear now when we're incubating an idea versus when we're scaling an idea. And we have organizationally changed ourselves where we say that's for our incubator, that's for our fund. And I think we just saw it as how do we help this business when we started? I mean, I think we got it, but we had to make a clearer signal to the world, particularly to founders who come in the door with a, I'm ready to scale, I'm ready to scale, can you help me? We're pretty clear that they should go to the incubator door, most of them, because they're not clear about their answer. So we have a come and crack your risk metrics and get under the watchful eye of Rob and Richard and the team and and our insurance partners to do that. And when you are ready, then we'll talk about how we scale you. And the fund is there is an accelerant for that. But let's work out, get your risk right first, and then we will work on a growth plan second, and then we'll deploy the fund third. I think the nature of our industry, sorry, our industry, We cross over many, but being a venture capital company, people just come to us, just add money. And I think we've had to turn ourselves into much more of a clear platform of steps in how we communicate with everybody. Yeah, I think the risk factor is so critical in all of this as well. And I think what Steve's probably not mentioned there is the element of product market fit too. His genius in terms of his background has been, how do you actually get a product that is required and needed to an individual so this isn't just a case of taking a glass of water and selling it to somebody who needs a glass of water this is really quite a complicated subject to get across to the people in a concise way so the last 30 years of insurance has all been about cheap insurance the next 30 years will be about understanding risk and appropriately managing your risk to then offset the unknown unknowns as we spoke about earlier. And I think we've managed to see that there are differences now. And you know, over the last five years, we've definitely honed down our understanding of that approach. 
Stephen, you spoke a bit earlier about the left side of the insurance brain, not talking to the right side or, you know, the right hand not doing what the left hand's doing. It's funny, after five, six years of reporting on this insurtech phenomenon, it seems to be we're still talking about the biggest barriers to innovation insurance being cultural. I mean, is that still the case, do you think? It's interesting. Um, culture is, plays out in different ways, isn't it? I mean, it's organizational, most obviously to us, in the, you know, the silo teams. And these are great big industrial companies that even use industrial words to describe what they do. It's pretty common when you've got a paradigm shift in an industry that was used to doing it one way and has scaled up in one way. When you go there, you just can't find the right door to knock on. There isn't an insure tech scale up and review door in most insurers. And I think that some are getting, have got it. And you can find the events that we go to, the events that we met, Mark, that we know that those first pioneers of those big companies are emerging. So I think we have to remind ourselves that there are progressive insurers who are meaningfully breaking down those barriers. And Rob speaks better to the culture of this is not a lean time in insurance terms. There isn't the necessity to innovate that you might see in other categories right now. This cycle is one of um, why bother innovating when there's so much opportunity today. So I think that if there is a cultural aspect in that, it's about short-termism. Why bother when we don't need to? And what a short memory short-termism gives the insurance market, that it can't remember its last down cycle, that it can't remember that. It's extraordinary for an industry this big to have such a short memory, because other industries with longer memories, like I mentioned before, the film, media, broadcast, they've all recognised change, and the smart ones have got on it pretty quickly. Robert, you've seen that. Obviously, we've got a harder market in the insurance world at the moment. Is that really meaning that they're too busy? Are they saying, call me back? I'm far too busy making money today. I don't want to innovate. I think we touched it. There will be people who think that. And um, we are definitely of the view that it is a three to five year cycle here is that when it softens up, if you put all your eggs into that hard market now and just say, I'm going to absolutely cane this market whilst I can, because a lot of capital has gone out of our market then in, you're not the right company for innovation. You will be that one that's challenged, I think, in a few years' time when the soft market comes in and the placement market has got lots of choice in terms of where they use and place their risk. It's at that time you'll want the 500 million worth of GWP that is in new sectors that hasn't been developed and isn't being attacked at this point. And having got in early, you would have then understood all the risk metrics, understood how you actually rate it, exactly correctly for you understand you make, make the right returns and understand how you take it to market as well so all in all you know you have to start now is the time to start it but if you're one of those insurers that just wants to make absolute stellar returns for the next two or three years then then innovation clearly isn't for you as someone with a really strong insurance pedigree what are the most important things that really need to happen to help an, inc- an incumbent insurance company change its mindset and get out of that siloed mentality and really embrace innovation and do it in a meaningful way? Well, I think it's got to come from the very top in terms of the decision to have a strategy that says we want to have innovation that is a five to 10 year strategy. We'd like to commit resource to it in terms of human resource. People need to be sure that they can spend time looking at, we're not talking about a lot of time either, but just have a front seat on what is the changing dynamics of risk coming down the view and we see them we see 600 or so new ideas a year so we get themes about what it looks like and what's coming and so the biggest 
challenges to ensure that the executive understand that this is a five-year view. Innovation isn't an overnight fix. It will pay back when you see new markets delivering $500 million worth of GWP. And it's at that point that you'll get your returns. Some people say you have to disrupt yourself and start a new insurance company, Nuco, over here, the one you know where people, no one wears ties and they're sort of in tech garage or whatever down the road and sort of leave your incumbents to sort of slowly wither on the vine. Would you ever advise that or, or is that just born out of total frustration? It becomes a two-tier structure and then why have they got beanbags? Why can they have beers in their office? It changes the culture. It is a cultural change, this. You have to embrace innovation as a company that says... Actually, we can adapt because there are a lot of very smart, bright people in a number of these insurance companies that want to do this. It's just they haven't been empowered to do so and they haven't got the framework to do so. And the platform that the Gateway offers is really helpful for large corporates and, um, well, any insurance company to be able to participate, jump in and out of our venture group meetings, see our deal flow, see the themes that are coming through so that they will then probably have an expert in that area of underwriting, who will be able to help us drive to the next stage of development. I think one of the challenges to your question is timing. And I think that the industry has wanted to show willing as part of their brand to be innovators. And they've possibly invested too early and possibly invested in things that were too comfortable to them, which is a, you know, that innovation is something that we need to show that we're doing rather than to allow a small group to possibly question the future of the space. It's a braver thing to do. It's, it's more on stealth. You're not doing it for the publicity. You're doing it to explore where growth is. So maybe it could have been framed differently and maybe it could have come from a different budget and maybe it could have involved more technical expertise from the incumbent business, the specialists from underwriting, the specialists in risk and actuaries who were giving their skills and guiding those that now understand things like data to that end, what their core skill, where that's going to go, where the future of risk is going. And I think the danger of it being driven by marketing and more PR-driven ambitions is that you find that a lot of these corporate attempts have been very much driven around brand, customer engagement, which are important things, but they don't drive innovation. Those there were always things that drove competitive markets, that drove fast following, not pioneering technologies. I think it harbored a kind of innovation, but not the kind of innovation we're talking about. I think I've come to the end of the list of questions I had for you. What about anybody listening here who perhaps hasn't engaged as much as they as they ought to and they're having you know regrets about that? What's your message to them? Have they missed the boat? Have they missed the opportunity? Definitely haven't missed the boat. No, they haven't missed the opportunity. My message would be be in the race. Start to get to understand what's happening in the uh, five-year view of what's coming down the line from innovation and create a, a sense of cultural change in, in terms of innovation. I like the question, Mark, because maybe this is a chance just to ask for something very simple, a simple step. If you're a very progressive underwriter, ask yourself why you can't make an investment and an underwriting decision and see if you can find a way to make a small one. Go and find out who your venture person is, if there is one, and have a chat with them about the kind of thing they're investing in and see whether you can find a common ground together. See if you can find a startup to back, an R&D program you're working on, But just start to find out what that person's looking at and let them find out what you're looking at and see if you can together form a kind of investable, insurable viewpoint of stuff in front of you. Because I think if you can get that agility in your thinking, then you can start this whenever. 
And I think that the reason we think you should start now is because we're seeing an enormous wave of fresh talent coming to the market. The quality of deal flow coming into the gateway versus five years ago is strikingly different in terms of their understanding what risk is, the models of things like parametrics and mutuals, what they mean. People come in well-versed now because they've seen the lessons of before us. So I think it's a case of if you do that, you will be surprised at how much opportunity there is for you. And they should come and talk to you, obviously. Come and talk to Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Robert and Stephen. I've really enjoyed talking. I always enjoy these conversations. Good luck with everything. And um, come and speak to us again soon. Thanks very much, Mark. Yeah, thank thank you. you very much, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>